Hello and welcome to the Lowdown, an insider's look at stories touching our lives here on Cape Cod and beyond. My name is Ira Wood, and you're listening to us on WOMR 92.1 FM Provincetown, WFMR 91.3 FM Orleans, and streaming worldwide, of course, on WOMR.org. By now, everyone knows about the Internet of Things, the connected network of all the devices we depend on, from our cars and baby monitors to sophisticated software-driven systems like the electrical grid, power plants, hospitals, and energy pipelines. Nor is it uncommon to hear about these systems being hacked, either held hostage by bad foreign actors or, in the case of Ukraine, an entire power grid being taken down in the middle of winter. And because our society is so dependent on technology, the threat has never been more real. In the past few years, hundreds of towns, cities, and counties were hit by ransomware attacks, shutting down hospitals, police departments, and more. Today we're talking about how this all started, where it's going, how we brought it on ourselves, and what we might do about it. My guest is Nicole Perlroth, who spent a decade as the lead cybersecurity and digital espionage reporter for the New York Times. Her best-selling book, This Is How They Tell Me the World Ends, was just released in paperback. Nicole Perlroth, thank you so much for talking with us today. Thanks so much for having me. I wish I was in Cape Cod right now. <laughs> Can I ask you what the weather is like? We hear so many terrible things about California right now. It has been very intense. Um, we've just had uh, these atmospheric rivers, which I can only describe as sort of mini hurricanes. So we have had, you know, trees have been down, but yesterday we actually had someone come um, fix our septic system, which has been out for too long. And, and he was driving home and a flying tree came hit him and killed killed him oh so my. it's just been yeah it's been horrible um it's just I, I just don't think you know we've had so much rain and all of these trees have been uprooted and we're really not used to this weather and so in an atmospheric river when the wind is you know, 80 miles per hour it's it's really become pretty dangerous I am so sorry. I mean, we get these horrible hurricanes, but um, every once in a while, not haven't been hit with them like you have for so long. Yeah, it's really global weirding. It really is. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's hard to it makes it hard to prepare. You know, we're just not used to it in California. We've been used to droughts and wildfires. And, and now suddenly it's this flooding. So it's been a really, really strange winter. I'm so sorry. All right, let's talk about another problem. Okay. <laughs> One of the great ironies of the story of your book is that the way it all started, that is, the way that hackers found their way into our computers, was through sloppy programming in the world's most popular programs. Why did companies allow their products to be released this way? Yeah, it's a great question. And it was, you know, just to back up for a minute, you know, this book is about the cyber arms race and digital weaponry. But what is digital weaponry? It's really just a way into code or a way to use code to destroy systems on the other end. And often the entry point are these bugs in software, flaws in software that if a hacker finds them, 
it gives them an inroad into a system on the other side. So I, it was really important for me to just understand and, and, and teach people what, what, what is a hacker? You know, what, what does this actually mean? And why would hackers end up doing this? And so I, I sought out to really explain that. And it was important for me to understand, um, you know, why would, why would a hacker find code and then, sell buggies those the ability to exploit that code to government agencies for surveillance like how did we get here and the answer is that really what hackers are is they're tinkers it's like the guy down the street who's constantly um tinkering around the inside of the hood of his car they're just naturally prone to poke around software to reverse engineer it to see how they can soup it up or maybe use it for another purpose. And back in the day, in the 90s in particular, when Microsoft and Sun Microsystems and HP and Oracle were rolling out new software and hardware, um, they were releasing systems that were just riddled with bugs in the code. And so hackers would go to work. You know, they would see, okay, how do I pull this apart? How could I potentially use this for some other method? And they weren't doing it in any kind of malicious way. It was really almost as a hobby. There was no real money to be made um, in hacking these systems. But a lot of them would do the right thing and they would call up the oracles of the world and they would say, hey, just wanted to let you know I was able to reverse engineer this new server you put on the market and um, I I think I could use this to get into NASA. Like you guys should fix this thing. And back then, the response from the companies wasn't, hey, thank you so much. We'll get right on that. It was, don't you dare touch our code again or we'll sue you. (laughs) And as things started to pick up, particularly with the Internet in the late 90s, Netscape sort of famously created the first browser and really brought the Internet to the masses and caught companies like Microsoft um, off guard. Microsoft was moving as fast as it could to try and get a web server to market, to try and get a browser out there. So they weren't necessarily focused on, oh, by the way, let's, let's slow down and make sure that this code is secure and it doesn't have bugs and no hackers could use it for some illicit means. It was just get this thing to market as quickly as possible. We'll fix everything later. And, and that mantra became what Mark Zuckerberg would say later, which was move fast and break things, you know, get your product to market as quickly as possible, ship, 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 and you'll fix the imperfections later. Well, all of those imperfections became pretty interesting inroads for hackers and increasingly government agencies for surveillance and counterintelligence, et cetera. So back in 2013, when Edward Snowden leaked classified information from the NSA, most people were focused on the extent to which the government has access to their phone calls and could force companies to give up customer data. But in the bigger picture, the leak revealed that the NSA had backdoor access to every piece of hardware and software on the market. These backdoors are called zero days. Can you explain what they are? Yeah, so on the simplest level, um, if I'm a hacker and I'm poking around, let's just use the simplest example, there are your iPhone's iOS software. And I find a bug or flaw 
Apple doesn't know about in that code. That's called a zero day because by the time Apple learns about it, they've had zero days to fix it and they're sort of in a race to fix it uh, before cyber criminals and governments can use it for some malicious means. So um, it's called a zero day. Now, if I'm a hacker and I take that flaw and I write a program to exploit it that could be used to potentially read your text messages or track your location or turn your camera on without you knowing about it, that's called a zero-day exploit. And zero-day exploits have immense value. If I'm a hacker and I discover that flaw, write the zero-day exploit, I have a lot of options before me. One of which is I can sell it to a broker like Zerodium, which advertises on its website that it'll pay you, I think the latest going rate was something like $3.5 million uh, for that iOS, iPhone, zero-day exploit I just described. Uh, with the caveat that, you know, one, you never tell anyone about it because the minute Apple learns about the zero-day, it's not a zero-day anymore. It's just a bug they have to fix. They patch it. We all get those annoying software updates. And once we run them, no one can use it to, to spy on us. So that $3.5 million you could get turns to dust. So I could sell it to a broker and make $3.5 million dollars. Um, I could tell Apple about it, and these days Apple will pay me a bounty for it, probably, maybe in the hundreds of thousands of dollars even. Uh, or I could use it to just spy on whoever I want to spy on. And so what, what struck me was that this market existed at all. Because the Zerodiums of the world, who do they sell to? Well, um, some sell to just the U.S. government. And the U.S. government takes those zero days and they add them to their stockpile and they use them when they need to, to track a terrorist. Um, you know, the FBI might use a zero day to track, track a child predator. Uh, we might use them to monitor our adversaries in Russia uh, or the Russian embassy or China or, you know, name, a, name an adversary. Um, but some brokers, you don't know who they sell to. They sell to Saudi Arabia. Well, Saudi Arabia is technically an ally, but we've seen them you know, pretty, do some pretty aggressive uh, spying and even murdering of their critics like Jamal Khashoggi. Uh, you know, how would China use the zero day? How would uh, you know, various other dictatorships uh, in the world use that zero day? And so I was just fascinated by this market. One, because no one even knew it really existed outside the hacking community. Uh, two, because governments were some of the biggest buyers of zero days, including our own government, the U.S. government. Um, and three, there, I always say the zero day market's kind of like Fight Club. You know, the first rule of the zero day market is no one talks about the zero day market. And two, no one talks about the zero day market. You know, it's just the minute you talk about a zero day, or the one I described, for instance, you know, at some point, Apple will learn about it, patch it, fix it, and that zero day stops having value. Um, but also, no one really wants to talk about how these tools are getting used or abused around the world. And so as a reporter, sort of naturally gravitate towards these topics. And when I joined the New York Times to cover the cybersecurity beat in 2010, this was something that I just found fascinating. Even just at the most basic level here in the States, I could not wrap my head around this idea that, wait, we, the American taxpayer, 
pay money to the government to keep us safe. But in this one case, they're taking our money and purchasing vulnerabilities and leaving us more vulnerable. Yes, so they can spy on our enemies. But, but you know, intuitively, maybe that worked 20 years ago or 30 years ago when we were using one set of technology and our enemies or terrorists were using another. But for the, for the most part, we're all still just now using iPhones and Android phones. So when the U.S. government purchases purchases an iPhone iOS zero day and they leave it open so they can monitor say terrorist communications. They're not just leaving it open for the terrorists. You know, that is an opening for anyone else to use to spy on Americans too. And what I was covering from my perch at the New York times was the fact that all of these other governments that we really didn't give enough credit to for how quickly they would develop digital surveillance capabilities they were in the scheme too, and they were coming for us and they were pulling off attacks like the North Korean attack on Sony or the Russian attack on Ukraine's power grid. And so this was no longer a secret or just something the U.S. was doing, something that the cat was out of the bag and governments all over the world were stockpiling zero days. And we were now the most targeted, are the most targeted nation state on earth by cyber attacks. So for me, the book was just an effort to you know, track the history. How did, how did this come to be? And let's crack this open because at this point, um, you know, we really need to start homing in on cyber defense. We've, we've had the lead in cyber offense for a long time. We had our fun, but, but we've seen some serious attacks here. And, uh, and our allies. And I, I thought it was time to call it out and start having difficult conversations. If you're just joining us, you're listening to The Lowdown with Ira Wood and WOMR. Today we're talking about our vulnerability to cyber attacks and how our own government may not only have been responsible, but is now kind of powerless to protect us. My guest is Nicole Perlroth, former New York Times digital espionage reporter and the author of This Is How They Tell Me the World Ends. Nicole, some people may be familiar with the joint American-Israeli cyber attack that disabled Iran's nuclear program. It was called Stuxnet, and it was kind of a watershed incident in the story of international cyber espionage. You wrote that Stuxnet had cracked open Pandora's box. What did you mean by that? So Stuxnet, it was this joint operation, for those who aren't familiar with it, it was a joint U.S.-Israeli operation uh, conducted, we don't know actually exactly when it started, but um, sometime in the, the 2000s, the U.S. and Israel um, developed this code, someone put it on a USB stick, someone walked into Iran's Natanz nuclear enrichment facility with that USB stick, plugged it into a computer and unleashed what is still the world's uh, most destructive piece of code. And what it did was the code climbed into the devices or the computers that uh, control the speed of Iran's uranium centrifuges. And uh, that's how you enrich uranium and you get your nuclear bomb is, is enriching uranium. So uh, you spin these centrifuges and you, you have to carefully calibrate them to, to these, these perfect speeds. And so this code did was it slowed down the centrifuges in some cases, and then it would sit back for a matter of weeks and it'd go back in and, and then it might speed them up and then it might sit back for a couple of weeks. And if you were an engineer at Natan's 
nuclear enrichment facility in Iran, and you were looking at your computer, it had this kind of Ocean's Eleven quality to it where it appeared that everything was functioning normally when in the background, the U.S. and Israel were actually sabotaging your uranium supply. So it was kind of the digital equivalent of the Manhattan Project in terms of its sophistication, although maybe the opposite or in reverse because it was a counter-nuclear proliferation effort. And what it did was it, it effectively sabotaged about a fifth of Iran's uranium supply. And it was a bloody masterpiece. You know, they did this without uh, Israel bombing Natanz uh, or, or the U.S. getting dragged into a third war in the Middle East around that time when we were already embroiled in, in Iraq and Afghanistan and there was really no political appetite for a third war in Iran. So in, in some ways that code saved a lot of lives. Now the problem with it is that it got out. We don't know how it got out, but sometime in, in late 2009 or early 2010, it got out, fled the coop, and infected hundreds of thousands of systems all over the globe, including here in the U.S. It, it infected Chevron. Now, it didn't do anything to these systems because it uh, had been so carefully designed, probably with a lawyer standing over these programmers' shoulders, to only exact harm on the exact configuration of centrifuges at the Tons. And if it got into any other system, some described it as a mouse that sniffed the cheese but didn't bite, you know, just... It was looking for this exact configuration and never found it. But in the process, it showed everyone the destructive potential of code. You know, once they parsed this thing, once they reversed engineered it and were able to figure out what it did and who the target was, uh, everyone's eyes open to the, the destructive potential of code. Until then, it was really an espionage surveillance tool or cyber criminal tool to steal your credit card information or identity it it after stuxnet it was a whole different era that we found ourselves in and and it was interestingly it was 2010 when i joined the new york times to cover this beat and it took me a while to realize that i actually wasn't covering cybersecurity. um i was just covering the post stuxnet era as every government <clears throat> uh, was waking up to the powerful destructive potential of code and that's what I ended up covering for 10 years, essentially. You can make a, a direct analogy to zero days and code phishing and um, stolen password scams, etc., to the atom bomb when it comes to security, can't you? I mean, once it was used, then you can't keep it a secret. Yeah, there's this term in the U.S. intelligence agency that say, you use it, you lose it, <laughs> you know. Unlike a bomb, actually, where it just detonates, when you use code for destruction, uh, it gives your target uh, or anyone else who, who encounters that code the ability to reverse engineer it and then build it back up for some other purpose or even to shoot it back at you. So in some ways, you know, you use it, you lose it. It's, it's, uh, you have to be very careful about when you use these zero days or these tools uh, like Stuxnet because the collateral damage is immense. And there has been a through line and it was really almost only in writing, you know, the writing process of doing this book that I could see them because when you cover cybersecurity for the New York Times, you have zero control over your life. <laughs> you are 
totally at the whim of whatever cyber attack is happening that day. And one day it's, uh, you know, China, the next it's ransomware, the next it's some uh, target, you know, the attack on targets, cashier, point of sale systems. It's all over the place. And so it can be really hard to pull your head out of the water and see the through lines. But the through lines were this. The attacks were coming from different corners of the globe. In some cases, countries we never anticipated would get these capabilities, got them rather quickly, like Iran and North Korea. Uh, They were, in some cases, the high profile attacks were just like a slight improvement or twist on the attack before it. Uh, They were coming increasingly for our infrastructure uh, and, and more damaging than the attack before them. And also we were seeing cyber criminals kind of pick up on these same tactics. So, you know, I think about um, there was Stuxnet. Well, two years later, Iran's retaliation in part for Stuxnet was a cyber attack they did on Saudi Aramco, you know, world's richest company, Saudi oil, oil giant, where they destroyed 30,000 computers at Aramco and replaced all their data with an image of a burning American flag. <laughs> And, you know, what happened next? Well, Sony, North Korea, did essentially the same thing to Sony. Now, they didn't use a burning American flag, but they destroyed something like 70% of uh, Sony's servers. They destroyed data. They basically forced Sony employees to pen and paper, all because they were upset over this James Franco, Seth Rogen (laughs) film I never ended up watching. But um, they did the added twist of, not only did they destroy this data, they leaked out executives' emails you know, to, where they were talking poorly about people like Angelina Jolie and uh, you know other actors and, and really embarrassed them. And we saw people get fired. Well, not that long after that, about a year later, two years, we see uh, the DNC hack where they start leaking out Hillary Clinton and John Podesta's risotto recipe, et cetera, and get weaponizing them on the internet. So in other words, like you're just seeing every time we see these major attacks, you, you do, you lose it. Someone else has the ability to study that attack and use it for their own purposes. And increasingly they're just upping the game, upping the game, kind of testing the limits in this space. And we haven't really come up with a deterrent strategy uh, for these attacks, even as cyber criminals start adopting these same tactics, particularly with ransomware, you know, the ransomware attack on on Colonial Pipeline. Uh, and these days, like the barrier to entry is so low, it's I don't even have to have technical expertise. There's now something called ransomware as a service where you just rent ransomware from a ransomware group and then pick your target and press play. So it, it, this is this is where we are is is uh you know the ability to inflict serious harm has never been higher as we've automated every piece of our economy our healthcare system our critical infrastructure and the barrier to entry in this market has never been lower if you're just joining us you're listening to the lowdown with Ira Wood today we're talking about the very real threat of cyber attacks to our infrastructure my guest is Nicole Perlroth former New York Times digital espionage reporter and the author of This Is How They Tell Me the World Ends. So, Nicole, it's my understanding that under the Trump administration, we were really, really much more open to cyber attacks, but it's getting a little bit better now. Can you talk about that? 
Yeah, I think the the banner year for cyber attacks was really 2020. Um, just as, as uh, Trump was winding down and, and Biden was getting settled, uh, you know, part of it was COVID. You know, the, the move to remote work or hybrid work really opened up immense capabilities for hackers. You know, they, the employees, you know, introduced a lot of vulnerability and complexity into these business networks that, that cyber criminals seized on. And, um, you know, we just saw some major attacks during the Trump administration, the most famous being an attack called NotPetya, which was a Russian attack on Ukraine. That's a terrible name, NotPetya, but that's just because initially when they hit, it looked to be this ransomware stream called Petya. You should probably define ransomware. It's, it's, it's a code that can basically take your data hostage and then criminals will demand a fee usually in Bitcoin or another cryptocurrency for you to, to gain access back to it. And uh, so this massive campaign hit Ukraine, uh, only it wasn't ransomware. It was just designed to look like ransomware. There was no actual way to pay to get your data back. And it didn't just hit every Ukrainian government agency. It hit uh, banks. People can get money out at the ATM. It hit gas stations. You can buy gas at the pump. It hit uh, Chernobyl, the old nuclear site. So people there could no longer monitor radiation leaks at the old nuclear exclusion zone. Um, and then it hit any business around the world that had even a single employee working from Ukraine. So here in the U.S., it hit Merck. Uh, it actually paralyzed Merck's vaccine production lines. They had to tap into uh, emergency stockpiles of, of the Gardasil vaccine that year because within minutes, uh, their systems were just totally paralyzed as collateral damage in this Russian attack on Ukraine. So that happened during the Trump administration. And, and there was just this real pickup in ransomware attacks on state and local governments, on schools. Um, many of you will remember when Baltimore was was hit by a very serious uh, uh, ransomware attack that I think ultimately cost the city something like $18 million to remediate. So it was just a really hectic time in this space. And then uh, we discovered SolarWinds, which was the Russian attack on an Austin software company used by most federal agencies. No name a federal agency, they probably use SolarWinds. And then more than 400 of the Fortune 500. So um, Russia basically hijacked the software from this Texas company and then used it as a Trojan horse to get into all of these companies and government agencies. And it's uh, we call the attack solar winds. And it was really the most um, intricate of the supply chain attacks. That's, uh, you know, where you come in through a vendor, essentially. Uh, so it was it was a nightmarish time. It was a really hectic time to be at the New York Times covering these attacks. And then, of course, many will remember Colonial Pipeline, uh, which happened in 2020 as well, when when a group of, of cyber criminals, bumbling cyber criminals, essentially um, hijacked Colonial Pipeline's IT network to the point where the company could, could not collect billing information to see but to bill people who were taking gas out of the pipeline or diesel or jet fuel. And uh, they were shaky enough in their confidence of the separation between their IT network and then the 
the pipeline itself that they ended up shutting down the pipeline and we all kind of remember what happened next with gas prices spiking and non-stop flights getting grounded okay, and- i only have about a minute left is it okay. better now is it is it getting better under the biden administration it is. You know, Ukraine, I was really worried about what the collateral damage would be from Ukraine. And I think we we will still see some. But look, we have not seen a serious cyber attack yet come out of that crisis. And Ukraine's been able to pretty quickly mitigate what Russia has done there. And that, that is the result of a really tight public-private collaboration we're seeing between governments and the private sector. So there is room for hope actually coming out of Ukraine for the first time. Okay, we're going to have to leave it right there. I want to thank you very much. The book is absolutely fascinating, terrifying, and if I have to say, it's even funny in places. You did a really, really good job. Thank you so much, Ira. I really appreciate it. Today we've been talking to Nicole Perlroth, who serves as an advisor now to the Department of Homeland Security, Cybersecurity, and Infrastructure Security Agency, and to the Council on Foreign Relations Cybersecurity Task Force. I want to thank Matty Dunn for his tech work on the show. This is How They Tell Me the World Ends was recently released by Bloomsbury. Thank you. And... Uh, This is Ira Wood with the lowdown on the secret worldwide market for cyber weapons, one interview at a time. Bye for now.